careful strategy, hard work, hard planning. Welcome to another edition of the Columbia University Sports Podcast, where we talk about the business of sports, media, entertainment. This is a special version of our podcast. I'm Joe Favorito, usually joined by my co-host, Tom Richardson. But today, we're going to bring you inside the Columbia University Sports Management Conference, which was held on October 6, 2023 on campus. We had over 35 guests throughout the course of the day. And this is one of three special podcasts with our keynote speakers. The first one is Major League Soccer Commissioner Don Garber. You will hear from Don and his moderator, Jillian Sakovitz, who is the co-host, uh, the studio host from Major League Soccer, uh, talking about a wide range of things, career advice, and where MLS is going. So let's listen in to this next uh, podcast for about the next 45 minutes between Don and Jillian. Good morning, everybody. Uh, thank you so much for having us here. I know Commissioner Don Garber is thrilled to be here. I'm your stu a studio host at the MLS Season Pass on Apple TV, Jillian Sakovitz, and this is our Commissioner of Major League Soccer, Don Garber. Don, yeah. Jill, let me, let me I, if I can, just open up sure. with a couple of things. Those MLS staff people that <laughs> graduated from the program here, just stand up. In the front row. Oh, here we go. I, I want to just thank uh, the program, Scott, and uh, all the friends that we have at Columbia for uh, doing such a great job in developing the next generation of future leaders in sports. So we have a great represent uh, representation here in the front, and uh, I'm just happy to talk a bit about soccer. Yeah, let's dive into it. So 20 minutes, the commissioner and I will get to chat, and then we're hoping to open it up to everybody here for about 10 minutes. So we'll dive right in. 24 years plus, Don, with the league, you've taken it through era to era, saved it multiple times. But your career began way before that. Can you take us through how you got into sports so early on, like everybody here is looking to do? Sure. Uh, and I've been in the sports business for over 40 years uh, at a time when there were no sports degree programs. Uh, you got out of school, and if you wanted to work in the sports industry, most people came out of the sports information area, or they were working in, in the press office or in operations in college. And uh, I had worked at an advertising PR agency out of school that was beginning to represent companies that were interested in marrying their brands with uh, sports people, sports leagues, and associations. And uh, my first client was Miller Lite. For those of you, your parents might remember, taste great and less filling. We had all these <laughs> ex-athletes, and we would take them around the country and do media tours. But my real claim to fame was uh, it was the 1984 Olympics. I, my client was M&M Mars, and we had a giant jar of M&Ms on the back of a truck, and a bunch of people in the agency drove around the country, which I did. And people would get to guess how many M&Ms were in the jar, and they won a trip to the 84 Olympic Games. M&M Mars was looking for a sponsorship and sent me over to the NFL, who had a marketing division at that time called NFL Properties. And I went uh, for a meeting with a guy whose name is Rick Dudley, just retired as the chairman of Octagon, a big sports marketing agency. And uh, they pitched you know, a sponsorship for M&M Mars. And I got back to my office. I said, man, you NFL guys are pretty aggressive. I said, no, we want to talk to you about a job. And that was 1984. I worked in sponsorship sales for a number of years. And uh, I was the guy that convinced uh, the NFL to 
uh, eliminate the dancing snowflakes and Disney characters in the halftime show and maybe get a guy like Michael Jackson to perform and founded the NFL Experience and did a number of things in that area. And then uh, the NFL was looking to start an international division in 1996, and I launched that group, reported to Robert Kraft and Lamar Hunt, who founded MLS. Mm-hmm. And they were, I was at an owner's meeting in Atlanta. It was Arthur Blank's first owner meeting, and Robert came over to me, and he said, uh, what do you know about soccer? I said, absolutely nothing. I hate soccer. And <laughs> he said, you'd be a great commissioner. <laughs> and the rest is history. <laughs> you know, it had to have taken courage at the time to jump from the NFL, a known property, into MLS, what was the deciding factor for you? Well, I started the same day as Roger, and I think Roger was uh, anointed commissioner when he was in grade school, so I knew I wasn't gonna <laughs> go further. I was the president of a division. Uh, I was traveling over 100 days a year. I'd opened up about eight international offices for the league, and I knew it would be a short uh, window. I didn't wanna be an international sports person, but as I was o- spent a lot of time overseas, and went to a lot of soccer games or football games, and I started seeing the demographic shifts that was, were going on in the U.S. At a time in my marketing uh, experience at the NFL, I launched the NFL flag program and relaunched punt, pass, and kick. I was the responsible for taking the helmets off the players and trying to build a identifiable fan base with a sport that was sort of disconnected from their fans. And we were thinking about soccer a lot. So the idea of... Demographic shifts, the growth of the Hispanic audience, seeing the, uh, the, the global connection that in and around sports was happening and I was living it every day, it just seemed natural. I probably wasn't quite sure at that time that it was the right decision, but it worked out okay. In that time, you've gone from 10 teams to what will be 30 MLS clubs, one soccer stadium to 26. How did, how did you do it? Well, that's a long story. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, I, I think in, in the, the beginning days, um, and another shout out to Sunil Galati, who's a professor here in the university, and Sunil was one of the founders of the league. And when I met with the uh, founding owners, Phil Anschutz, Robert Kraft, and Lamar Hunt, the league had 10 teams. Uh, they operated three teams. So the league, uh, a guy in our office who was the longtime president, operated three teams. So he would uh, do trades with himself. He would go from one office to the other and managing Tampa and he would just have, he was the general manager of three teams. That's actually an exaggeration, but the league operated three specific clubs. I knew we needed to get uh, those teams in the hands of of independent investor operators. Uh, We needed to expand the league, but before we uh, could do that, I believed we needed to reorganize the league. 2000, 2001, Uh, The league had already uh, lost about $250 million. The owners at that time tasked the league office to come out and present a plan. I think that was one of the seminal moments in my career, one of the seminal moments in our league, arguably one of those real disruptive points in professional sports because we went to the owners with two plans. Uh, Give us another $250 million and here's what we'll do with it or fold the league. And we actually went through bankruptcy discussions. We had parallel discussions going on at the same time because we weren't sure that we would get the incremental capital. Part of that $250 million ask was to start a marketing company akin to NFL properties, something I was familiar with that would go out and raise the commercial value of soccer in America, right? At that point, FIFA could not sell the English language broadcast rights for the World Cup. Think about 
that 2002-2006 World Cup was sold to Univision, but they had no English language carrier. So we went out, told FIFA, why don't we buy those rights? We had to raise money from our owners to do that, form a company that would represent U.S. soccer and the Mexican uh, Federation and League and et cetera, et cetera. That was part of the plan. And by the way, um, if you're not going to invest in that new company, you ought to leave. And a number of owners did leave, and we folded a number of teams. It wasn't until 2005 that we expanded again. That expansion fee was $5 million. That was not that long ago to go from five to the 500 million we just closed uh, in San Diego a few months ago. A lot of, a lot of history along the way. Great owners, uh, growing, growing passion for the sport. I do think the digital connection where people are connected to each other, where somebody who lives in Brazil might be, have as much as common with somebody who lives in Brooklyn as that Brooklyn person has with somebody who lives in White Plains. So we were able to capitalize on the fact that the, the world was shrinking. Soccer was exploding. Our national teams, men and women, were doing well. We just rode the wave with smart investment and careful strategy, hard work, hard planning, lots of consultants, lots of, as you know well, lots of risk going out and digging in and taking risks and having the courage to fail. And all of that so far has gotten us to where we are today. Another seminal moment that has connected MLS to the world more is MLS on Apple. And I know you and your team worked tirelessly to get that deal done, the first of its kind. Now that we are almost through season one, how would you describe it? Well, I think it's important to take a step back. Uh, you are students. And I think that when you're observing things that take place in industries, um, I think it's important to understand what happens under the covers. How do you peel the onion back and see uh, what are the steps that businesses take? What are the decisions they make? How do they raise capital to support those decisions? How do they create consensus around those decisions? And importantly, how do they have the right governance in place? So even with the right capital, the right people, the right energy, if you don't have the right governance, then you can't execute on your plan. Our decision to uh, get the, the path to getting to where we are now, Jillian, you've been doing a great job. You all should tune in to MLS 360. Jillian's a star. Uh, was seeing that our local television business was softening. All of our clubs were mandated when the league was founded to have a local TV deal. So NYCFC it was on Yes, and uh, the Red Bulls are on MSG, and Time Warner for the Galaxy, et cetera, et cetera. It was a mandate. And as the regional business was softening, you all know that. How many people have a pay-for-a-cable subscription here? That's why we're on Apple. I mean, that's <laughs> not brain surgery. Right? So we started understanding by just tracking our club's local deals that three years later, uh, this would happen. So we went to our teams with the right governance. We're structured like a limited as a limited liability company, told our teams, you can't sell your local media rights past a certain date. We then told our, as we were looking at the sports betting world, at the, at the data collection and distribution world, all the things that are related to our intellectual property, the league put a, a terminal period on and said, we're going to put that in a bundle. And then we went out to the market, to the traditional market that now is no longer tr traditional, but to the streamers and said, we are the only league that could offer a package that would have one touch, one click accessibility 
to any consumer anywhere in the world with no barriers, no blackouts. So if you want to watch Messi and you live in Buenos Aires, you can turn on the same app, open up the same app and watch it no different than we could watch here uh, in northern Manhattan. That concept was aligning with what the streamers have been thinking about. Uh, so we were in many ways, as you know, in the right place at the right time. But dealing with Apple was difficult. Apple had never been in the live sports business, not been in a live business. Live is very, very different than controlled content and aggregated, curated uh, content. Uh, we have a great visionary leader in Tim Cook and Eddie Q, who's his right-hand guy. They did the deal, which is kind of unusual. Uh, it's an interesting dynamic. We're used to negotiating with the heads of sports divisions. This was a deal that Eddie Q and Tim were intimately involved in, which was a bit of a surprise to us. And as they were building out their vision for Apple services, uh, we were able to deliver them everything. We had, every, we had 61 different start times last year. Now we have two. So think about what that means from scheduling. Our attendance has gone up. Well, I was told this is on the record, but our attendance is up over 20% uh, this year. We'll announce that shortly simply because fans know exactly when they can go to a game. It's the Sunday night, Sunday afternoon, Thursday night, Monday night thing. Uh, that exists in uh, the National Football League. So uh, it's been special. We produce all those games. We hire all of our talent. The league is not a production company. We had to learn that. We had to create that muscle to hire 85 on-air talent people, and we had to produce 600 games in an eight-month period of time. It's all in 1080p. There's no other league in the world that does super high definition. I think you'll start seeing games in 4K, uh, I think Apple's doing a great job on Friday Night Baseball with technology and the inclusion of data. Just wait what you're going to see in MLS, what you've seen already, what you'll see in the years to come. And lastly, Julian, it's a partnership, and that's the dip most different aspect of it. After we hit the minimum guarantee from Apple, we make 50 cents of every dollar. That's the risk in this deal. I'm highly, highly confident we'll get into that revenue share. So we have a partnership with the largest, most innovative, technologically forward, big thinking company in the world as our partner. So we can think about things together, like should we sign Lionel Messi, which we likely would not have been able to do if we didn't have Apple, and I'm sure that'll be your next question. It's been fascinating. I can tell you our studios are just over at 106 in the park. It's been fascinating to watch this project build, and it's been incredible really to be a part of and it was incredible before Messi. And like our commissioner said, it's been even more incredible since his arrival. You saw LeBron James, Kim Kardashian. The people cannot stop coming to get a taste of Messi. What has surprised you the most about Messi's arrival on MLS? You know, I had this in my talking points, which I read <laughs> on the way here, and I should remember to read them in more detail. So I was supposed to say, so that was a good uh, hint for me. Okay. Before Messi, this was the best, teaming up to be the best year in MLS history. St. Louis uh, came in as our 29th team. Uh, it is our most popular team. Our attendance and revenue in that club is at the top, top of the table. They're doing unbelievably well on and off the field. Uh, what a great way to launch the season. We had 82,000 for the Galaxy playing LAFC. There was so much energy and so much momentum coming into this. Uh, and when the league started, while we had been working on Messi for years, uh, in accordance with FIFA guidelines and, and the like, uh, the, we would have had a great year and a record year with attendance even without him. Uh, but similar to the Apple deal, these things just don't come over the transom. You know, we have 
consulting groups that work with us on research? Where, who are the players that we think can be transformative? What kinds of ways do we need to try to uh, talk to them about making MLS a league of choice? That is our brand message. We want fans and players and partners, uh, municipalities and, the, and governing bodies to think of MLS as a league that they can be proud of. And the discussions with, uh, with Leo were very much about you can be part of building something that will transform not just sports in North America, but soccer around the world, competing against you know, the Saudis, which is not uh, an easy entity to uh, have to compete with. But we were able to get to him and talk to him about how could our league work for what he is trying to achieve for his career and for his family. Uh, it was... Um, complicated, uh, and it's worked out pretty well. It wasn't as much fun as the Beckham uh, negotiations. Uh, that negotiation, which uh, I, don't, I don't know that you know, it could be a Beckham's documentary just came out on Netflix uh, this week. But you know, Beckham decided he wa wanted to come to the United States uh, 2005 or so. Uh, he was in the prime of his career. Uh, I had to go out with uh, somebody that Sunil knows very well. And uh, the president of the galaxy and mate with David and his wife and convince him how this league at that point, 2006 would be able to handle and manage somebody like David. And it worked out incredibly well, but the David concept came out of research that said, our fans want to see more international players. Mm. They want to see us national team players and they want to see the biggest stars in the world. And David at that time was the biggest star in the world. Uh, Messi is how to just get the best player in the history of the game. Uh, it's over-delivered on what we expected. I mean, I, I didn't expect the celebrity turnout. Uh, <laughs> by the way, I didn't expect him to perform the way he did, and it's really a shame that he's been injured the last uh, number of weeks in the opening game, uh, that League's Cup uh, match, when he had that free kick. It was the 92nd minute, and I was with folks from Apple and folks from Adidas and turned around and said, you know, we actually deserve this. And it's kind of like a penalty <laughs> kick. I didn't, my True. back was turned and, and he scored that free <laughs> kick. It sort of was like that thing where maybe there's something here that's going to deliver perhaps more than we thought. And it's been great. Attendance has been 62,000 in Chicago with no Messi. Uh, just the other night, we had our uh, averaged over 23,000 people on Wednesday nights of all of our games there, which is an incredible number for us. So it's been good. It's been, it's been fantastic to watch. And by the way, manager Tata Martino has not ruled Messi out this weekend against FC Cincinnati. So keep your eyes on that. Speaking globally, let's talk a little bit about the World Cup coming to North America in 2026. And while it seems far away, I know, Don, for you and your staff, it's absolutely not. What does it mean for the league? Well, I mean, I'll take it higher. What does it mean for our country overall? Mm -hmm. uh, what does it mean for our, our sport? Uh, on all sides and all aspects, all stakeholders, and then ultimately for MLS. Uh, you know, the World Cup's the biggest event in the world. Uh, everybody here probably has some following understanding of what uh, the World Cup is. I'm sure you saw Messi's uh, victory uh, in Qatar. But I don't think people really understand how big it is. You know, it will be billions and billions and billions of dollars of ticket revenue. Uh, you're going to see the largest tournament in the history of the World Cup. It's going to be across three continents. Our country will stop and pay attention at all levels uh, when the greatest teams in the world come and compete for 
the World Cup trophy. And I think that's going to be great for our country. There'll be great legacy programs. All the host cities are creating programs. They'll go deep into the community at the government level, at the grassroots level, at the youth soccer level. All of those folks coming together, connecting the dots to create a legacy of what the World Cup will do for us in 27 and beyond. And my message to our federation and to our league and to our partners in the pro game on the women's side is let's think about this as the rocket fuel that we all are looking for to elevate the sport to levels that will rival the rest of the world. Uh, I tell our federation, I've been on the U.S. soccer board for 24 years, uh, that we have an opportunity to have a generational impact uh, on creating the value that this sport can provide at all levels to all people getting into cities uh, and to the urban core where our sport isn't uh, touching people and influencing their lives as much as the beautiful game can, and on and on and on. But from a business perspective, there's almost nothing in life in business where you know exactly where you will be three years from now. We all do long-term business plans, and we all try to forecast. Got a lot of holes on where you're going to be for revenue and expenses, and it is very difficult to do that. But we know in the summer of, of 2026 exactly what will happen. And we could have that countdown clock that I can have all of us across every aspect of our sport thinking about what do we need to do to ensure that we're capitalizing on that opportunity. And you could imagine it's deep. And I think it's going to be really, really special. Yeah, we're all really excited for that. Final question before we open it up to the group. When you're hiring young people at MLS, what's the first thing that you look for? Well, it's probably no different than you. I'm sure you'll hear this from every speaker. Uh, I'm not a good interviewer. I, I'm a gut guy. I didn't go to an Ivy League school. You know, I didn't come into uh, uh, the sports business with the same uh, level of experience and pedigree. Uh, I grew up in Queens. I went to a public school. My parents were public school teachers. But I always knew that if I worked harder and I was uh, able to capitalize on my life experiences, that I ought to be able to win. And that's kind of taken me to be able to hang out at the White House with you and others at our All-Star Game with the President of the United States, but also sit down and ensure that I'm meeting with interns when they come into the office and hopefully have a memorable impact on that. I look for people who are smart or hungry, who are ambitious, without climbing on the shoulders of those that they're working with, perhaps being pushed up uh, by those people who uh, they're working alongside who are going to work harder than the next person, but I don't want to know how hard they're working. I want to see the quality of their work. We all want smart people, but I'm assuming smart's a table stake. We're also very focused, as we all ought to be, on diversity and ensuring that we're surrounding ourselves at all level with people that can see themselves around the table at all levels of the organization so that we can embrace uh, diversity of thought uh, we have a diverse ownership group. We have a diversity committee that is chaired by one of our employees. That is the only diversity committee in pro sports that has our players on it, our coaches on it, our technical directors, our owners, and our staff, including the Black Players for Change, as you know, uh, an organized union of our players, all working together to help us think about life differently. And if we do that, then that should carry through to our employees. Uh, I want employees to have fun. I mean, we are in the sports business. It's a gift to combine your avocation and your vocation, not taken away from everything that everybody else does. But we get, and this sounds colloquial, but we get to actually work in delivering on the hopes and dreams of our fans. And if we do it well, we're going to create lasting memories. 
And if we screw up, we're going to have to pay the price because the scrutiny and obligations we have to the public and the standard we're held to uh, is higher. That's the price we pay for being in the great business of sports. I can attest that MLS, the one thing I love the most about is if you're passionate and you're hardworking, you can create your own path and, and really move up there. And it's embraced by everyone around you, no matter where you come from. You got two SUNY Oneonta graduates up here. Okay, let's open it up to Not taken away from the great Ivy League education. Absolutely not. <laughs> we'll let the microphone come around and, and pick who, who wants to. Hi, Dan. Uh, thank you so much for being here today. Uh, my name is Hernan Gonzalez. I'm from, originally from Peru. I'm currently a student here in Colombia. Um, I could spend a whole day asking you questions, but I'm just going to do one. Um, so recently, everything aligned, right, to, to have MLS I have this growth that we've seen uh, in these last months, right? Like Apple, Leo, Messi. But do you envision um, taking into account the future World Cup and the Club World Cup and the Copa America next year here in the U.S.? Do you envision uh, the MLS being a top five league in the world? And if so, when do you think that could happen? And what's the right path, uh, not only sport-wise, but leadership-wise to get there? So a, a, a great question and a long, uh, and we could spend the rest of the day talking about that. <laughs> Our aspiration is to be one of the top soccer leagues in the world, top soccer football leagues in the world, measured by the quality of our play, the passion of our fans, the relevance of our clubs, and the stability of our enterprise. So if you think about that across all of the other leagues, you have a lot of popular leagues that are economically upside down. You have some clubs that are really relevant and some clubs that aren't. This idea that can you really name all teams in La Liga or do you just think about um, Madrid and Barcelona and maybe Atletico, et cetera, et cetera. Those goals, right, the, those uh, uh, driving sort of core uh, visions for us are something we think about every day. So when we're thinking about quality of play, how do we measure ourselves against the rest of the world? How do we manage our salary cap? How do we change the way we're spending players? How do we attract more international players? How do we incentivize our teams to sign young international players that ultimately can go on and do great things? Miguel Amaran coming through at Atlanta and being a star in the Premier League. How do we invest in young homegrown players? All of our clubs are required to have academies. We, they now go up through a second league. We own AAA baseball in MLS. It's called MLS Next Pro, a $100 million annual investment all trying to create the pyramid from youth all the way up to pro that other leagues have for 100 years. And when you have owners that are so focused and have so much capacity and just want to win, win doesn't mean just winning because somebody's going to win and somebody's going to lose on every weekend. We're talking about winning, being thought of when you think of the Premier League. That's what we sit around in our planning meetings and talk about. It's a lot about generating more revenue. We can invest more in players. It's about 26 soccer stadiums. When I came in, we had one. And investing $15 billion in stadiums all over the United States and Canada, all of that puts us in a position where our league is respected by the rest of the football world more than it's respected by people here who are following global football, which is an enormous irony. I co-chair something called the World Leagues Forum, the top 42 leagues in the world, and we led the creation of that we're the keynote speaker and we're up on the stage talking about proper governance, proper revenue generation, proper fan development, proper management of off-field activities. We do things 
really well. And that's part of the measure. It's not just about whether or not you have Lionel Messi. And I try to tell our people that all the time. He will be here to 25, 26. There will be world in 27 and beyond the year after the World Cup. And we need to be bigger, better, stronger, more profitable. Do we have time for one more? It's on. Somebody. Hi. All right. Hi. Um, thank you, Commissioner Garber, for speaking to us. I'm not a student, actually. Um, I flew in from Missouri, um, but um, I'm a big fan of MLS, and I've always had aspirations of working in Major League Soccer, but um, you know, I currently work in, in FinTech. But um, one thing that I wanted to mention is, you know, before my question is, you know, I have a background in, in social work, and I'm very interested in the intersection of community impact and soccer, and I have some ideas on um, you know, how MLS could improve like the MLS Works initiative. Um, but let me just get into my question real quick. So I understand that um, similar to the NBA, the NBA has partnered with Kenya to have an office there in, in Kenya. Um, and I heard the U.S. ambassador to Kenya mention that MLS would like to have an office or a location in, in Nairobi. Um, and that interests me because I am Kenyan. Um, so if you have any uh, insight on that or any details about that, um, that would be awesome. Um, if you're looking for somebody to help out, I'm <laughs> I that guy. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, just Good on you. that question. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, the ambassador to Kenya is Meg Whitman, who's the uh, part owner of FC Cincinnati. Uh, and it, she's one of four uh, female uh, members of our, of our board. Uh, you know, the NBA has done an unbelievable job with NBA Africa and NBA China. I mean, history will judge it as one of the great innovations and moves in the history of professional sports. Soccer or football is a global sport. The NBA is a global league. And being able to do what they're doing is remarkable. And I think they're going to see value of that uh, in ways that are going to pay off for generations. I want to just get finish on the MLS works side of things. You know, there, there is a growing... Uh, part of our industry, CSR, community service and relations. It's a growing part of our business. Uh, also, the player engagement area is another new part of the industry. How are we working with our players to better educate them, to ensure that, you know, we have guys that are playing until they're 35 years old and they've wore shorts to work every day. And now they're 36 and they've never had a job. And unlike many other players, though our players now are making more and more money, and I'm proud of that, you know, we've got to work with them to think about what life is going to be like when they retire while they're still working, working with programs that we have with investment banks and et cetera, et cetera, to provide career opportunities for players, keeping them out of harm's way, another exploding part of the sports industry. Uh, we all know now that there are no shortage with social media of challenges that players uh, get themselves into and need to face not just dealing with them when that happens, but how do you have programs to ensure that they are um, uh, better prepared for those uh, types of challenges. 35% of our player pool is international. They're coming into our league. They play for less than three years. Many of them don't speak English. Imagine what that challenge is like for them when they come into Cincinnati and they're from Rio and they've got to come in and manage life living in the Midwest. So, there are so many growing parts of the sports business. I'll leave with, uh, it's not just about the traditional jobs. Uh, our business is exploding in areas of opportunity. And I would encourage you to think about things we haven't thought of. 
And that's what would intrigue uh, somebody that's running our people space, coming up with ideas that MLS should be thinking about uh, that might be off our radar and, uh, and create that opportunity for yourself. I started the event development business for the NFL because I pitched them on the idea for the NFL experience. It didn't exist. And it turned out to be a company that had 120, the department had 120 employees. So, you know, you get what you put into any job. And sometimes you shouldn't wait for that opportunity. You got to create that opportunity yourself. Commissioner, thank you so much. We hope you've enjoyed listening to the special edition of The Cusp Show, the Columbia University Sports Podcast, which was taped on October 6th, 2023 at Columbia. I'm Joe Favorito for my co-host, Tom Richardson. Join us again, and we'll see you down the road.